from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out onto the famed Locust Walk, University of Pennsylvania. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. How are you doing? It's great to have you back as our leader, back in the lead chair. I'm glad to be back. It's been a while. I, I, I should have been back last week, and the, the friendly skies conspired against me. But you guys have been holding down the fort. We've got lots to talk about. Looking forward to talking about it with you. You guys listening can join the conversation. Please do join the conversation. Give us a ring. You can give us a ring right now. You want to jump in? You want to guide this thing? You sick of Eric guiding this thing? Tell us what you want to talk about. one 844 Wharton. 1-844-942-7866. You can, you can give an opinion. You can make a prediction. We love predictions. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We pick those things up live. Actually, we, we, we do respond to email during the show. But if you're listening one of the times we're replayed, which is four or five times over the next week, if it's not 8 to 10 Eastern right now, still daylight savings time. If it's not 8 to 10, you're catching a replay. And you, can, and you can communicate with us by email. We've got two hours. We've always got two hours. We have guests coming up bottom of the hour this, 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 this hour and then in the top of the next hour, as we usually do. Between now and then, open lines, week one NFL football. I can't imagine what these guys want to talk about. Shane, Eric, what has caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, I would talk about the NFL and the NCAA, but I, I, we do have to give some props. Shane and I talked about this a little bit on the air last week, but the streak has continued I mean, at some point, we have to start listing this with, you know, are we getting close to DiMaggio-like probabilities? I mean, the Indians have now won 20 straight games. Yeah. 20 straight. Now, that ties the American League record. As a matter of fact, we can ask Rick Peterson. Yeah. Um, the A's won 20 straight in 2002 during the height of, if you'd like, the Moneyball era. The Indians have won 20 straight. And I just, just again, this is the same math Shane and I did last week, and we could talk about its flaws if you believe the Indians were a 500 team when it starts, one half to the 20th, meaning, you know, win, 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 win. There's only one way to get 20 wins in a row, which is win, 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 20 straight times. One half to the 20th is about one in a million. Okay, so that's starting to get to an interesting number. One in a million is not something you see all the time. What's interesting is, this is what we talked about last week, if they, if you believe instead, well, maybe they're not a 500 yeah, team. Maybe they're, maybe like they're a, a 600 team. Right. Well, point six to the 20th, by the way, is rare, but it's amazing how much it's not as rare. So now you're at 37 out of, or sorry, 3 out of 100,000. Now I'm not saying 3 out of 100,000 is not a rare event, but it's 1 out of a million, one in a million. Yeah. 1 in a million is very different than essentially 3 out of 100,000. I mean, it's a big, big difference, but still, to me, we're at one of these incredible moments in sports history. I mean, 20 straight wins. Yeah, so three out of 100,000 is still more rare. Than, I mean, if you actually tabulate the number of opportunities throughout all of baseball, 
that we've had for twenty game winning streaks. Would we have an? Would would three out of a hundred thousand be? Because we this has now happened twice, at least twice. Because you said it was the American League record, right? So is the National League get? That is correct. Yeah. The Cubs actually. There's so what I there's a record. It depends whether you want to count it or not. So the Cubs, sorry, the Cubs are in 1935, 121 straight. Okay, so that's the official record. But the White Sox in like 1905, one. Well, I, I don't say one. They had a 26 game streak, but one of the games was a tie. So I don't know how you want to count that. They allowed tied and ties in those days. But 21 though is Piss the on that. By yeah, the way, but 21 is the record. The Cubs right. in 1935 is the record. So this has happened basically three or four times in baseball history. It's hard to get a kind of a gauge on the denominator for that. Well, how like, about the following way to think about it? Maybe just tell me whether you think this is the right math. We've been doing, I did a game-by-game game math, but maybe a different way to think about it is, let's say there's 30 MLB teams, right? Yeah. Each team has the possibility in any given season, let's say, to have it. Let's say baseball's been around 100 years. So we've had 3,000 opportunities, season-level opportunities for this to happen, yeah. and we've observed about two of them or three of them. So it's like this happens one in every thousand teams, like one every 30 years. How do you reconcile that with the earlier stat, the once in 300,000? Well, I was I was going to get to that. The other stat underestimates, um, I think, the probability, the, the probability of this happening because it does not build in Uh-oh, Eric's he's favorite say it. He's going to say it. I thought he was going to say it. Momentum. Momentum. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The Indians have momentum, <laughs> and thus they, their probability of winning, their their well, conditional probability of winning 16, given that they've won 15, is not 0.6 or whatever their true team well, ability this, this is. This is a little I'm, bit higher than that. Well, I'm really, well, maybe. This is what I'm, I'm really glad that we have Rick Peterson on at 830 today, because this is what I really wanted to ask him. I was thinking about this. Do you guys agree... Let's imagine you believe momentum exists for a second. Let's pretend that you, you believe it exists. Yeah, yeah, I know I believe it exists, right, but let's I mean, pretend you, okay. you believe it exists. Uh, Do you agree then that. that maybe winning the fourth game is more likely than winning the second game, if you believe momentum exists? Yeah. Okay. It's not clear to me, and I'm looking at my mathematical psychologist friend, Professor Massey here, by the time you get to the 15th game, mm-hmm. it's not obvious it doesn't turn the other direction. Right. So, in other words, at pressure s- at some point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. At some point, these two curves have to cross. So you, and the question is, at what point well, do they cross? Eric, and I'm asking Kate, uh, hypothetically, he doesn't even want to consider because he doesn't believe in momentum cr- does or does he necessarily believe in pressure. Now you're asking or game me for 18. second order momentum. You're yeah. like, have, you have to define, you take this fuzzy concept to begin with, it probably doesn't have much basis. And then you say, now we need to explain the dynamics of it. So I need a, I need a, I need another parameter in there that says, well, it's not just about if you win one game, you're more likely to win the next, which is the simplest model of momentum. Now you need to have some. It depends on how many games you've won. And at first it's positive, and then it becomes well, negative. Let me say what's, That's a really complicated model. Well, let me model. say what's really positive about what you just said. I know you don't believe a word you just said, but you've correctly interpreted what I have said. Well, I so would... that's a good thing. We're on the same maybe, wavelength maybe, maybe a different. Mo- I, I, I think of it as two competing processes going on right now. We've got the momentum process that's given us sort of positive correlation, the pro- increasing the probability that we win subsequent gains given that we've already won. But then there's this sort of like pressure process well, you, you that's kind of competing with it. And those it's when, really when those two processes kind of cross over, well, when the pressure process dominates the momentum process. <laughs> See, it can talk about this like it exists. No, no. Listen but, to me. Know, but let me just say, from a mathematical perspective, you brought up an interesting question. You know, people study this all the time. Like, are there two buckets 
meaning is there a momentum bucket and a pressure bucket, and those each have their own processes, and when one's greater than the other, it dominates, or yep. is it as Cade described? Like right now, I, we've been talking about the probability of win given win is greater than the probability of win. But maybe what we should be looking at, as Cade said, is the probability of win given win and how many wins you have. That would be like a single bucket process yeah. that gets moderated by the number of wins. So to I mean, me, it's an interesting... Look, we I certainly do not have enough data to distinguish between these two theories all, of what's going on. Well, but. Wh- why? So in a, we, 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 we barely wait. have enough data to cut, no, settle on momentum no, by itself. No, yeah. Wait a second here. What we do have data on is we don't have data just on the conditional probability of win given win. We can bucket things into how many consecutive wins you have. That's we, that data yeah, exists. What kind of data do we have on like what's the pro, You know what's what's our data on the probability of winning sixteen games given that you've won fifteen? That's probably the denominator in that particular like calculation is like five times in baseball history. Or what? Well, all right. So what? <laughs> so we, we do not have much data out in the tails where the, where the, apparently these two processes or single process. Like, you know, I just want to say themselves. something here. I'm feeling really good about this conversation. Let me say why. Because I brought up momentum? No, no, that's not why. The two of you don't believe what we're talking about, but you're talking about it in a sophisticated and intelligent fashion, which legitimizes my beliefs entirely. So I'm really glad. I'm I'm glad that Cade's back. I'm glad that you're here. This is entirely... half the art of being a professor is talking in a sophisticated way about stuff you don't believe. Well... Congratulations, <laughs> Professor Jensen. You've yes. done a nice job this morning. Thank but you. I believe momentum so here's, exists, here's, and, I, and I do believe there's a crossing point. Okay, well, so let's take a simpler question and a more important question. Does momentum ex- exist in the following fashion? Does a record in September influence playoff performance in October? So are we increasing our likelihood of Cleveland doing well in the playoffs and decreasing them for L.A.? So, by the way, I go away, and L.A. starts turns into what? Like the Phillies? Yeah, well, they did, they're doing the anti-Cleveland right now. They've, by the way, yeah. this is another calculation I did last night. So let me say, the Dodgers did win last night. They had lost 11 straight. Yeah. The question is, which one's more likely? A 500 team, which the Indians were, winning 20 straight— or a 750 team, essentially, which the Dodgers are Indians. winning a lo- Indians, right? I mean, sorry, Indians, sorry, winning 20 straight. Yeah. Or a 750 team no, like bet- the Dodgers losing 11 straight. Oh, the Indians, Indians winning. I mean, I don't think the Indians. Were the Indians actually at 500 when they started this whole? These Maybe 550. I thought they slightly, were already no, but the slightly above. Okay. Slightly Strong above. Strong intuition that the Indians is, is, yeah. is less likely and more likely. It is more likely. Yeah. It is more likely. Like a 750 team should never lose. Eleven, not never, but it, it, does it say something? Was it not really seven fifty? Yeah, we, well, don't, we don't we don't observe the true probability. But that's the that's the other thing is that maybe they and just like I said, maybe I need to update my belief about the Indians that they're not really a five hundred or five fifty right. team that's that right. they're a six hundred. And by the way, they're that's now right. only two games back of or three games back of the Dodgers of having the best the Indians of yeah. now the best record in baseball because of so they've caught up. 17 games in the last 19. During this win streak, they've caught up on the Dodgers 17 games in the loss column. So there's a different non-stationarity question than momentum. It's not just momentum. So, for example, if you you, you just told me that the Indians haven't quite caught the Dodgers for best record. They have not If yet. we were to run a power ranking system to ask who's got the stronger strength, who's the stronger team right now, if there's any non-stationarity in that model at all, if they discount the deep past more than the recent past. Great point then you're going to end up with the Indians higher than the Dodgers. And it's utterly reasonable, in fact, important to do that. In fact, an important issue in a model like that is how deeply do you, how differently do you discount depending on how 
far back the game is. So let me do two things. Let me answer that and then answer your question about does there any carryover to the playoffs. So first of all, the way I would do it is I'm an out-of-sample prediction guy. So I would think about future games. I would take a data set for which I know the future outcomes, and I would put a weight, let's call it a discount factor, on wins that allows me to predict future behavior. Now, that doesn't make it right. That's just one criterion by which you could fit a weight function, and that's the one I'm interested in. I'm interested in, you know, I don't need to predict the past. I want to predict future outcomes. I would choose a weight that would give me high out-of-sample prediction. Yeah. And I believe, you're right, I believe you weight... You choose it, you'd fit it. Yeah, fit it. I'm sorry, I meant choose. Yeah, I meant yeah. choose, I meant fit it using yeah. a model. I, I would fit it. But in terms of momentum, Shane and I talked about this just briefly last week. The thing that this winning streak allows Cleveland to do is they have two all-star players right now who are injured. They don't need to rush them back. Their pitching rotation, if this continues through September, will be perfectly lined up for when they don't need to say, you know what, nor the Dodgers necessarily at this point, but like I don't need to play my best pitcher in this game to win this game so that we end up with home field they can rest guys which we've talked about the role of rest we've had many people on analytics talk to us about the role of rest they can rest guys without the worry about winning games because they're going to be the they're likely to be the one seed in the al yeah and i mean i i don't you're right i don't really particularly believe in momentum but i do believe in non-stationarity as it captures things like injury or rest or whatever and i mean I, so Tra- in, trades acquisitions trade acquisitions you know um and you know to the extent that we can kind of see the evidence in cleveland that they have improved as a team that there's some non-stationarity there that 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 obviously does predict well for october do you believe and this is uh, relates to an article cade sent us just this morning do you believe that hitters have what i'll call the good state and the bad state of their performance. Like sometimes they're more locked in than others. Let's imagine. I mean, I don't think it's. I mean, no, no. I, you're discretizing it for. But let's no. imagine it was just a good state and a bad sure. state. What I always say, you know, one thing that you could believe that drives you into the bad state of as a hitter is trying to press and do too much. One, let's say one believes that, whatever that is. Well, if you're on a 20 game winning streak, my view is you don't have this perception that you have to carry the team. I believe that you, what you might end up having is I'm not saying players are all. Playing at their peak performance, but you might actually have, a, a, as a team, you may have more players in the good state because each one of them doesn't feel like they have to press and you know carry the team. So there could be interaction effects among players. I don't literally and mean are, if, like you're sitting next to me on the bench, I'm hitting well, it's going to rub off on you. I just mean as a collective to win games, each player thinks if I just do my job, I don't have to force myself to be in the hot state. But I think there is a more d- direct interaction effect in baseball than the whole like psychology of like oh I I don't have to I don't have to be the hero here. Because if if the person sitting next to you in your yeah. in the batting order is yeah. hitting better, you will hit better. I mean that. I mean we don't have to because, overcomplicate because, it because of pitching and defense. Because of pitching, because because you're not gonna you know the on base. pitchers are gonna have to be that much more careful you know with you and everything and and yeah no I, I mean so I think there's direct interaction effects that probably dominate these sort of I I think kind of more psychological interaction. Right. You know what may also is interesting about this streak, just maybe last stat about it. I don't know if this is true, but I thought I heard this was true. I think in these 20 games, I think the Indians have scored first in all 20 of them. Wow. Like, I don't think they've That's trailed. Absurd. If it is, it's 19 or 20. They've, but they basically have scored first in every single one of these games. Do they have unusually good middle relief or something where they can take advantage of these early leads? 
and just smother the other side like soccer? Is it just soccer? Have they turned baseball into soccer? Is well, that the theory? Yes, but just also to give you, as our Pedro Martinez yeah. guy here sitting here with the Red Sox hat on, their ERA, at least as of one game ago, I didn't look at after last night, although they, I think they may have shut the other team out last night, their ERA, starting ERA during this streak was 1.75. Oh, the best, second best in the AL during that streak, by the way, which was the Yankees, is like 3.9 something. Oh so they're gosh. more than two runs better yeah. than any other team. This is getting Pedro-esque, and, yeah. and this is a collective staff, but I mean, th- right now, they're just, it's not only that, the number of shutouts they have during this streak is just remarkable. So a couple things relevant to our playoffs. One, they're only two games up on the Astros right now for for the number one seed. That was the team they passed. Yep. So that's that's a race, and that's going to stay a race. Well, I mean, at the moment, it would it would be very relevant to who pitches and who sits and who doesn't sit. Can can we remind me who does how does the seating work in baseball? Like, for example, if the Yankees end up being the team that makes it, do they do they make sure that they don't play the Reds? No. no, it doesn't work that way in baseball. So in baseball, let's remind everybody, yeah. there are three divisions. Let's talk about each the AL for a right. second. There are three division winners. They're seated one, two, three in order of their record. There let's, are call two- them, let's call them Red Sox, Indians, and Astros. Okay, that's not going to be the right order, but yeah, but it, yeah, but right. like so. Let's whatever the order happens to be. Yeah. Um, it sounds like the Astros would be the one at the moment. Who has the Indi- be- Indians? Yeah, so I guess I'm sorry, the, Indians, the, Astros, the Red, Red Sox. The Red Sox as the worst as the worst of the division okay. leaders. Let's say the are Yankees are the wild card. Right. The let's Yankees. say the Yankees are the wild card, and yeah. let's say they're Ast- are the well, uh, Twins are the for, other for, wild. For completeness, there's a wild card game. It'll be Yankees versus somebody. Yeah, right? that's what I'm saying. Okay, the winner of that game plays the best. Division, number one seed, the number one seed, of regardless of okay. which conf- of which yep. division they're in. Right so the, now, right now, the Yankees would let's say the Yankees win that game, which would be at home if they have the better of the record. They have the better of the record. It would be the Twins, just for completeness. Yeah, Yankees yeah. would play the Twins. Let's say they beat the Twins. The Yankees would play the Indians. At this point, it would be the Astro Red Sox at Astros. Okay. Okay. Okay, good fun. Um, just you know, just to clear the picture up because I haven't thought about baseball in a while because I haven't been around you guys. The the NL. Let's walk it through at the NL. The yeah, top so the record actual, over the Dodgers still the, have the best record. Yeah, that's what I said. The, the Indians exci- haven't quite caught them yet. The most exciting division race in, in baseball is actually in the NL, the NL Central. It's that's the, correct. It's kind of the only one. There's a little bit in the AL East we just AL talked East about. The Yankees and Sox are still there. The Orioles are still nibbling around. But the difference, the, only, the one big difference between the NL East and the AL East is that, sorry, the NL Central and the AL East, is that the Yankees at the moment have the buffer of, well, if we don't win the division, we make the playoffs. There's nobody no, in the NL Central right. besides the Cubs or yeah. the Cardinals, etc. It's an old making school the division race. It's, it's yeah. the old school. You don't win because the all two wild card teams are coming out of the NL West. Well, that's not quite true. How close are we to the end here? Because the Rockies are up on the the Cards and Brewers are only four games back from the Rockies for the. Okay, so it's not that far. There's 25 to 26 games oh, left. Oh gosh, yeah. There's still a, there's still a, there's still. I didn't a wild realize card they race. were as close as you yeah. said. Okay. I, I thought it was over that the well, two the wild whole, cards the were whole coming out NL of the West. NL West has been slipping down, kind of relative to the rest of the I NL. I see. Okay. Any 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 explanation on the Dodgers' performance? The dip. How does that happen? Pressure. <laughs> no, sorry, I <laughs> I tried. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, it, it could be as it's a very extreme example of regression to the mean, but it could be just sort of them regressing back to kind of, uh, you know, they we all sort of were looking at them when they were, you know, their sev- their record in- indicated seven hundred team. We were all looking at that and saying, well, seven hundred teams can't just don't good. exist. It they don't in exist, baseball. right? So 
You know, right. maybe, well, maybe they, they didn't exist. They, exist they were every once in a while. I mean, the Yankees once were near 700. We know this. The in Mariners one year were baseball, you can't completely stack things. They don't exist anymore. So one last word, and then let's hop sports. But the Neil Payne wrote an article, I think, yesterday. So our, our buddy at 538, Neil, said, hey, slow down on this stuff, guys. This, this, the, You would think, the way people are talking, that the Dodgers now are going to be washed out of the playoffs in the first round, and the Indians are going to walk oh. into the World Series. And he, he, his momentum test showed that streakiness in September didn't have any predictive ability above and beyond yeah. merely the better one-loss record. So a win in September has the same predictive ability for the playoffs as a win in June. Right. Not even much non-stationarity in his, in his simple model. And, the win, and, and your win totals don't have much predictive power at all going this into is the, the playoffs. This is the Jensen coin anyway. I mean, it's really just mostly coin flips. So. But actually, and the good news about that, the question you just posed, Kate, is it's actually quite empirically testable. Yeah. I mean, you can look at playoff performance. Yeah. You can regress that on whether it's just win-loss, recent performance in September. You know, I know it's obviously it's just anecdotal, but you probably remember this. I think it was 1998. The Yankees went into the playoffs having lost lost 13 consecutive games, and they won the World Series. I think I I know they won the World Series. They may have lost only one game in the playoffs. The Yankees were at 87 wins for like the last month of the season. That's remarkable. By the way, I ran the same test on NFL a few years ago and and couldn't build a momentum model at the end of the season that would have any predictive traction in the playoffs. It was the year that the Giants actually came through. They had a hot late season run. And won the dang Super Bowl. And I was trying to disprove that the whole time because people were talking about momentum. There's no historical evidence that that performance late in the NFL season predicts playoff performance at all. They, actually, they did it, but there's no historical and, evidence. And so we could have a debate about this. The question is, is this a power issue, meaning maybe the effect no. exists, there isn't much. Because that, I'm just saying, I'm glad you've done the empirical test because I would not like I would have bet a dollar against a penny. I would have thought in the NFL that there would have been, if given enough what we're data... Learning, what we're learning, Eric, is that you believe in momentum in every domain. There's yeah. no in the NFL thing about no, it. No, but I would have thought more so in the NFL. I just would have... Uh, no. But it's wrong. Oh, it's, right. it's okay. I learned something today. Thank you for le- teaching me something uh, yeah, on Wharton Moneyball. Absolutely. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're talking sports analytics. We do it live every Wednesday morning. Kate, Eric, and Shane in the studio this morning. Adi is on sabbatical this semester. He's going to be away more than he's here, um, but he will be back in the spring, and he'll be back intermittently. Um... We uh, we had some other sport happen this weekend. So I wanted to talk about that one. So And, of course, it gives you our ability to predict. So we had the U.S. Open tennis, oh. I assume you referred to. Is that what, that's what you're referring I, that, to, that's, right? That's where well, I knew. I knew he was going compa- that way. Such and, a compelling final that yeah. the U.S. Open. Well, no, but, no, but we could talk about the fact that so now we have Roger Federer with 19 um, major victories. We have Nadal, who's now caught up a little. He's back to 16, although it's the same as it was at the beginning of the year since they each won two this year. But now we ha- it's an interesting question about who do we think will end up with more majors at the end of their career. I mean, Nadal is five years younger, so you know he could win five French Opens. I don't think Federer's getting the 21 majors. So I was just thinking about this, but also Nadal won the major. He basically, the top-ranked player I think he played was maybe like 30 in the world. This was probably his uncle Tony, you know, Tony Nadal, the coach, said, yeah, this was just a routine win for him. I mean, well, he basically the, the said we Pancho didn't. knocked Federer off the I, I two days I before. I said that. I said Nadal didn't play anybody. I know. He, well, Nadal played the guy who knocked he, off I know. Federer. He played Del Potro. Del Potro's ranked like 25 to 28 in the world. I understand he's. Dangerous. This is his tournament. A, he just beat Federer. And I mean, I'm glad. Not and, I'm, and Nadal is glad he played uh, Del Potro after Se- yeah, Federer yeah, did. Sure, played sure, him sure. second. But sure. yeah, either way. 
I was just trying to think about if you had told me, you know, a couple years ago, because remember, Federer did not win a wager for four and a half years. The question is, and by the way, he's the age Nadal was, Federer, when Federer stopped winning majors, except for this year. So now the question is, can Nadal continue? He's going to end the year number one player in the world. When was the last time Nadal uh, didn't win the French Open when he played in the French Open? He hadn't won the French Open since 2014, so he okay. won this year, but he didn't win the last couple years. All right, and, w- and he played in those years. He did play. Now, he was injured, but he did play. I just, I, I see, I, I kind of feel like that guy's kind of automatic for the French Open. Well, that's for... why I said he may win four or five yeah. more French Opens, and that gets him to 20 Federer or can't 21. can't with that. Well, I, I think Nadal's more automatic in the French Open than the Federer, Federer is, is at, at in Wimbledon. all the other ones. And at Wimbledon, where Federer did win this year without losing a set. The first time since Borg in And he's got to make up three. Do you have an answer to this question? Do you have an opinion? I do have an opinion. You don't think he's going to do it? No, I think Nadal will end up with more majors really? than Federer. Yeah, wow. I do. Because I think, I, you know, I, this is my belief. I think at most, I wouldn't have said this to you a year ago. I wouldn't have thought Federer was going to win any. I don't see how Federer has more than one major left in him, maybe two at the outside, if that gets him to 21. I think Federer, Nadal can win the next four or five. I mean, no one's close to him on clay. Yeah. He could get markedly worse and win the French Open for the next four or five yeah. years. So that gets him to tw- I, I think I'm kind of with you on that one. I think Nadal. And by the way, historically... It's going to be kind of a... I don't. I there's not going to be an I, asterisk, but I mean, are, are we going to? When we look back, and it's going to be Nadal mm-hmm. at 22 and Federer at 21 or something like that. But like 17 of those 22 <laughs> are on the French Open. Are we going to look back and say like, eh, it'll be, it'll be Federer? A, yes, it'll be debated for Federer's all time. Federer's a better. It'll player. be debated for all time. Well, except Fe- you know, Federer has a 14 and 24 record against Nadal, so maybe we have a little bit mm-hmm. of evidence. They're they're 500 on every other surface, and Nadal dominates them on clay. That's they're they're 500 I against each other you, on every think, other surface. I think you can do pretty well shorting those kinds of predictions because people tend to underestimate things that we can't see right now, like injuries, like new competitors. You, 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 you extrapolate, I do remember getting, I, I do remember thinking to myself, oh, Tiger's Tiger Woods definitely going to win 25 majors. Tiger Woods was going to win yep. 25. There was a certainty that he was going to pass Nicholas. I think the point that's maybe a good question, Kate, I think the point that's disappointed a lot of people, especially on the men's side, not on the women's side, where we saw Sloan Stevens number, t- three weeks ago, number 900 in the world win the U.S. Open. I think people are like, where are the competitors yeah. on the men's side? Yeah. Like Rorinka, we know, is out for the season. Djokovic is out for the season. Murray's now out for the season. Nishikori's out for the season. But these are all guys. Nishikori's the youngest of those guys, and he's now 28. Like, where are, you know, where's the days where the 20-year-olds, where are these great men's players that are going to challenge Federer and Nadal? Because with Djokovic, Murray, and Rorinka out, basically you could have bet a ton of money that Federer or Nadal was going to win the U.S. Open. Yeah. So I'm saying, where are on the men's side. Yeah, right. Where are these great young players? They're not, if they are great, they're it, it, not as great as Federer and Nadal. It's a mystery. It is. And, but you also have to wonder whether these, some of these older guys might have more staying power than you would expect given changes in sports science, given tra- changes in training, given the example that Federer has set of, of the, the impact rest can have. It's a great example. John McEnroe has always said he would have won more majors if he had stopped playing all these other minor tournaments. Yeah. You know, he, now, this is to in retrospect. Well, I don't want to say to pay the rent, but obviously it wasn't $3.7 yeah, million. No, purses were very different. Purses were mm-hmm. very, very different. And he said, you know, Federer could 
I mean, Federer could play three to four more years of majors, given he'll probably, no, that's four events a year. He's not going to play the French anymore. I think we both agree. There's no way Federer's going to play the French yeah, going why, forward. Why, why, why would he? Why if bother? he hadn't won one of them, he would, yeah. just to try to win it. He could play the three majors and like five other tournaments and, you know, play once every two months and, you know, rest is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, we're going to talk baseball at the in the next half hour. Um, we're going to talk some professional football in the second with our second guest at nine, and then we'll we'll pick some games. We'll talk about the week upcoming. But we've got a couple of minutes here. I'm curious are are y'all paying any attention to college football? I know a lot. Yeah. So a lot of attention. We've had two weeks of college football. Has anything in particular jumped out to you? So last Saturday night was one of the best regular mm. season. Just sit around and watch four great games that you'll have in college football. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised. I almost bet the game. I'm glad I didn't. I was surprised that Oklahoma went into Ohio State and won the game as sure. convincingly as they did. Sure. I would not have predicted that. I mean, in fact, I, if, if you had asked me the score, I would have said that score, but I had the teams wrong. Yeah, um, right. And so, um, and maybe I was basing that too much on Ohio State's victory last year in Oklahoma, um, which yeah. tried to you know, maybe told me something. I was very surprised by that. And I was also surprised, you know, every year I keep thinking to myself, Alabama can't be as good as the Massey Peabody and every other system says. And then, you know, they go and played Florida State. And I don't think Florida State's going to turn out to be, well, they beat a bad Florida State team. No, I don't think that's the way it's going to be. You know, that was two weeks ago, I guess. But Alabama is just, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Inexorably. Inexorably moving forward. It's it's it almost takes the fun out of it. <laughs> <laughs> they do have a tough LSU team to go through in the SEC but, West. But, and they're and they're stronger than the I mean they, the they they at least they have they have the good graces to occasionally lose the championship game so that we don't sort of think of that's them true. as like this that's completely just, dominant. That's just team. because there's a benevolent God. I yeah. mean, there's no other and explanation. You probably are thinking the same they're thing about the be Patriots. There in that championship game, but You're probably thinking to... about that as the Patriots yeah. too. Thank God no, the Patriots aren't Seven and zero in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Thank goodness the Patriots don't have a perfect season. But I would think the let me tell you the division in football in college football that excites me right now. I hope it excites lots of our fans here. The Big Ten, especially the East, we got Penn especially, State. Especially, there's nothing in the West. We yeah. knew right. you were talking no, about the East. No, 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 I know, but I'm saying. Go ahead. To me, go ahead. Just because Ohio State lost, let's not bury them yet. With Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State, and there's some other teams in the Big Ten East that aren't horrible either. Maryland trumped my boys opening weekend. Yep. So I'm just saying, it's really interesting to me what's going to happen in the Big Ten East. And by the way, there's no guarantee. I think I don't know how much the Massey Peabody system would have the winner of that over, let's say, Wisconsin. Oh, in this, we would just about make it a guarantee. Yeah, really, a guarantee. Wisconsin's going to be overrated all year, in, in our estimation, because they don't play anybody, so they're going to look better than they are. But right now, for example, we'd take Ohio State, even after what they did on a neutral field against Wisconsin, we'd make it. 12 points, 11 points. Okay, wow. so that's that's a big, big gap. And is Ohio State still the top seed of, if it was Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, the power yeah. ranking for the Massey Peabody ranking for Ohio State yeah, still we the still, highest? Yeah, we still have Ohio State number number two. FPI, which is the, the, the best system out there other than ours, we believe, FPI has them number one still. Um, Penn State, we have eight, which is you know quite strong. And then Michigan, we don't really believe in as much. They lost so much versus last year. We have them like 13, 14, something like that. Actually, the thing that's not shocking to me is that you have Penn State as high as they are. Um, I guess the momentum's building for Penn State. Momentum. (laughs) No, it's definitely momentum. I would say that it's because they have a really good running back. All right. (laughs) 
Uh, fellas, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 Eastern. If you're listening 8 to 10, it's live. Otherwise, you're catching a replay. We are replayed four or five times over the next week. You can jump here and join. Jump in here and join us. Give us a call. Matt Dots, producer, still a rookie. For a little while longer, we'll call him a rookie, but he's been around for a couple of months doing a great job. You can talk to him directly. 1-844-WHARTON. 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Drop us questions, predictions, observations, criticisms, whatever you want to do. You can send us an email. We've been talking, man, that first half hour. I thought you guys, having been hungry for football, Audie being I mean, that's what Audie I being, wanted to talk about. But Audie I, being I away, Audie couldn't constrain us, and yeah. we spent 20 minutes talking. Now, look, I thought it was fun, but really? We, I mean, we, we can stick a fork in tennis now, right, for like a few months? <laughs> well, until the Australian <laughs> Open in January. Oh, Unless right. you want to talk about the year-end championships. So i got a few months of not, No, but let me say the following. I, I can, obviously, I'm a sports fan of most sports. I'm also a bigger statistics fan, and to me, the rarity of a 20-game streak led to an interesting dialogue about what's rarer, them winning 20 in a row, the Dodgers losing, non-stationarity. Trust me, we'll get to plenty of college football and pro football. By the way, speaking of obscure sports, I'm sitting on Locust Walk here having lunch yesterday, and these guys are walking by. The Newcastle rugby team is in. Oh, wow. This is like Premier League rugby, and they're playing some Philadelphia match. These guys are big, big boys. (laughs) (laughs) But it was entertaining. Pin, pin, pin. These guys walk by Penn Campus, and these professional rugby players walk by. And you don't know who they are, and you're like, "Those are really good looking fo- Penn football players." Really, that's Ivy League football. It's surprising. All right, hey, well, we still got some more baseball to talk. It is an interesting time of year to talk about baseball. It regular season wrapping up, gearing up for the playoffs. To talk baseball around here, we like to make a call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's call to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. Joining us now, Rick Peterson, former Major League pitching coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Oreos. He's now a sought-after motivational speaker and co-author of a recently published book, great book, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick is a regular guest on our show. We're delighted to have you back. Rick, good morning to you. All right, guys. How's everybody doing? We're doing well. Doing well. Fired up. It's a great time of year to be paying attention to sports. Football is off and running, and baseball is heating up. I mean, what could be more fun than that? That's pretty cool. Cool. Rick, we're, we spent 20 minutes right off the bat. We couldn't help ourselves but talk about streaks, given what's going on in Major League Baseball right now. And we were delighted to have a chance to talk to you, having been involved with one of the most famous streaks in baseball history. When you watch what's going on with the Indians right now, what memories do you have from the A's, and how do you compare the two streaks? Well, the the memories is, like, unbelievable. I mean, it's, like, so surreal. And, in fact, I flipped on a television yesterday and put on MLB Network. They were doing a segment on on you know what the, what the tribe's doing right now, and then they went back and they showed highlights and interviews of 
of our streak, you know, back in the Moneyball. And ironically enough, it was the Moneyball year. I mean, you talk about, you know, you talk about fate for, you know, someone like Michael Lewis who comes in to right. write an article that turns right. into a best-selling potential book. Fr- franchise. Best-selling yeah, franchise. And, and, you know, and we lose Hatterberg, or I mean, we lose Giambi, Damon, and Isrenhausen and have no money to replace all three of them. And, I mean, we could have won 70 games. You'd have never heard of Moneyball. You know? Right. <laughs> Instead, we won 103 and then had that 20-game win streak. It's a great point. Which is really just, uh, I mean, it, it's so unbelievable to think that a team could win, especially in baseball, you know, 20 consecutive games. Football, you know, football is really challenging to do something like that. It's been done. I don't know how many times. I mean, you guys would probably know that. You know, obviously basketball. The Patriots won twenty plus games, kind of over over string right. string of two seasons, and maybe not, the seventy and maybe the seventy two Dolphins. Yeah, um, since they were good, they went to the Super Bowl the year before. But they, let's maybe maybe once in football, but not very often either. Rick, mm. well, what about in college football? Oh, Oklahoma, I think might have the longest one. How long is that? I think in the fifties. It is an absurdly yeah, long right, streak right. in in college football. And then didn't didn't. Um, didn't Wooden's teams back in UCLA? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have um, 88 consecutive games is oh, the largest streak in men's college basketball, and that was broken by UConn in women's college basketball. Right. Recently, you know, Gino Oriema's team, there's something like 100 absurd. and something consecutive games. Uh, it's inconceivable. That's inconceivable. Wooden's team won 88? 88 consecutive like games. parts of three years? That's correct. Wow. They won, They won. well, they remember, they had, this was the Luau Cinder, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar right. era, followed by the Bill Walton era. Right. So Bill Walton's team was the one that <laughs> lost, but they hadn't lost a game in three seasons. They had won six consecutive championships. Do you think, do you think when Kareem and Bill Walton get together that Kareem gives, gives him a hard time about that? I'm sure he does. He <laughs> <laughs> You blew it. You dropped it, man. I passed you off a perfect team when you dropped it. Yeah, you know, uh, Something that's interesting is the difference in the performance this year between the Indians and the Cubs. And it, these teams were within a few pitches of having switched roles last year. A pitch, a pitch. Right. So, you know, is it, do you, is anything, how can we explain the difference in their performance given how much talent's on the field for the Cubs and they're just not playing? And the Indians. So there's an easy psychological story to tell here, right? That the Cubs are complacent, they won, the Indians are like, Jilted, and they've got a you know something to prove. Or, Do you believe those? Kinds or, of or yeah, the counter story is just they're actually basically the same level of team. They're just you know just on field performance has there's variation in on field performance. The Indians are having okay, an, so we uh, have relatively we have up one year story, randomly. We have one story that tells sells newspapers and magazines. Yep. and is and is very you know this narrative arc, and it's got human motivation. The other story is like a dry statistical story. that says nothing to see here, nothing to see here. It's just natural variation. Well, I think more than anything else, it, it really, it's the old cliche in baseball, it comes down to pitching. And, and and the Cubs are not, they're not pitching anywhere close to what they did last year. And they went through a whole series of time. Um, I, I think it's shifted a little bit, but where they're, all, their velo- all the starting pitching velocity was down. You know, they've had some injury. Hendricks has been out. Um, Lester's not the same, you know, by any means. Arietta's bounced back now. But you take a look at the tribe, and and you look at Kluber, and and it's so contagious. I mean, they've had nine shutouts, nine shutouts. How is it possible yeah. that pitching is contagious? It's contagious in in the way. So so let's let's say you have three or four dominant starting pitching, and and here here's the other thing that was really interesting. MLB Network 
um, they did the Prime Nine series going back a few years ago, and you know they picked the best shortstops, the best second basemen, the best you know you you name it. And one of it was the best starting pitching, the best starting pitching core for a season in the history of the game. And the Moneyball starting pitching was ranked number nine in the history of the game. Wow. Okay. MLB Network. And so that was Mulder, Hudson, Dito, and Lytle. Mm-hmm. So when you have that kind of starting pitching, so what happens is, so let's say a pitcher doesn't do well in, in, the, in the game, and let's say the rest of the team does well, and they lose. So let's say the starting pitching gives up you know, six runs, he gets out, you know, they bring in the relievers, they give up a run or two, you lose 7-1, or 7-2, whatever it is, 7-3. Well, when the team leaves at the end of that night, you got one guy feeling really bad, the starting pitcher. The rest of the team, you know, they performed normal. They had, they had a normal night, you know, one for three, two for four, you know, three for five, two for five, whatever. So the rest of the team, they leave and they all feel good about themselves. Like, all right, you know, we're okay, you know, if we just stay together. But when you have a starting pitcher who dominates a team, the team that just got dominated, when they leave, that whole team feels bad. And then they come back the next day, and then they have another starting pitcher that shuts them out or shuts them down, one or the other. And now they're leaving two days in a row, and they feel awful. And, and that, that's why you see offensive slumps, they get compounded. Because once you, get, once, you, once you start to have a two days in a row, and then now you come back for the, so the third day, let's say it's a four-day series, and you come back for the fourth day, and you got four dominant starting pitchers that just dominated your lineup, you leave that series and you leave town, and you the whole team feels awful. So, Rick, let me this is Eric. Let me ask a specific. I don't call it if you'd like analytics question. Mm-hmm. How much can a team use analytics on a game to game basis? For example, let's imagine the Indians are playing. Corey Kluber goes out there, does a really good job against the team. All of a sudden, they study the tape, and all of a sudden, the next night, you go to the starting pitcher and say, "This is what worked the night before." Or is analytics not at the usage level yet, where it would be like, "Tell the next starting pitcher what worked in the previous game." It totally is. It totally is, but it doesn't work that way. It works individually. So, for example, not all starting pitchers have the same stuff. You know, the, the shape of Bauer's curveball is much different than Kluber's slider. Or he calls it a curveball, but his slider slurve. And, and it's a much different break. You know, so you, you go in and you take a look at, okay, well, how does Kluber's stuff match up to each individual hitter in this lineup? And then you lay it out. And then who swings? Who swings at the first pitch? Who's going to take? Who's going who's gonna to be aggressive with runners in scoring position? I mean, obviously, I think it's. I think his batting average against Kluber's like breaking ball is somewhere in the low 100s. So that track record of that breaking ball, you know, then then you take a look at, for example, now Bauer comes in and you take a look at, all right, how does his fastball move? And it's interesting because Bauer literally went through the analytics of the TrackMan data of the kind of movement and the kind of spin and that that Kluber's two seamer has, and he's tried to mimic it. He's tried to match it, and he credits that to, to a big part of his success. Hmm. You know, so each individual hitter matches up against an individual pitcher differently. It, it's, not, it's not a cumulative effect. It's not like in football where you have patterns and you have certain defenses and certain schemes that'll match up against a certain offense. So, Rick, let me ask something else that uh, Cade, Shane, and I were talking about, but on a different topic. How much do 
when you use analytics in baseball, how much do you weigh what I'll call recency versus what's gone on the whole season? So, for example, maybe you, if you're the Indians or the Yankees, whatever the team is, Orioles, you look at the last 10 games and say, here's the analytics over those games. Or do you still use April's data, May's data today? How much downweighting is there of past performance? You compare them. You compare them. So what I, what I, what I specifically would do, and this pattern started during the Moneyball era, I would take a look at their opposing hitters, and so each individual hitter in their lineup, and I would look at what did they do in their last 30 at-bats against a right-hand pitcher, what did they do in their last 30 at-bats against a left-hand pitcher. And then I would match it to what their overall pattern is in the course of, of the season and start to look at, you know, what's going on with this. Like, for example, like R- Ramirez for, the, for um, the, the Indians got hit the other day or two days ago, it, like the pitch hit the bat and then, then glanced off the bat and hit his forearm and he left the game. Well, that forearm injury, you know, it, it may not, it may not match his swing now because his, his forearm's bothered. Let's say he got hit in the hand, it would be much more d- dynamic. So maybe because he got hit in the hand and the wrist, like like a, a pitch that's close to him, which he really handled exceptionally well on the inner half of the plate, he might not be swinging at that pitch very good right now because he just got hit in the hand two mm-hmm. days ago. Mm-hmm. And that and and you watch it. I mean, I, I remember the one that really stuck out in my mind was Moises Salou when he was with when he was with San Francisco. Well, he he made a change in the stance from the beginning of the season, and, and actually not only from the beginning of the season, but from what he had done for years. And so when I w- when I was preparing for the series, you know, I looked at this and I said, in in the past, forget about throwing a fastball inside for a strike to Moises Salou. Forget it. Don't even think about it. It's deadly. He's going to smoke it. And then I'm looking at he changes stance and he closes stance up, and now because he closes stance up because he wasn't covering the outer half of the plate, now he was vulnerable on the mm. inside part of the plate. Mm-hmm. And so we were in the coach's room, and you know one one of the coaches said, "Hey, how are you going to pitch uh, Moises this series?" I said, "We're going to pound them in with fastballs," and they're like, "Oh, you that's stupid. You don't want to do that." I said, "No, you don't want to do that." Two months ago. Now you want to do it. Wow. They're like, no, no, there's no way. I mean, that's the old school mentality. I'm not right. going to mention the person's name, but it's like, no, you know, you know, you don't, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We got a whole warehouse of tires. Put a, put new tires on. Them, let's go. <laughs> we don't need to reinvent them, but put new tires on. Wait till wait till the, the tread wears out. And you got flat tires sitting on the side of the road. Right. Right. You know. So, and and you know. So then you know he walks into the manager's office and is like, you're going to like pound. A, Moises in with fastballs? Yeah. Go look. You, go do your homework. Right. Don't talk about what you saw like two months ago or three months ago. You know? I mean, I know it rained last week. doesn't mean we're going to put the tarp on today. It's, it's clear skies. There's no, there's no clouds in the sky. Right. We're talking to Rick Peterson, Rick, longtime major league pitching coach and regular guest here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, so, Rick, this is Shane. Uh, so your earlier comments about um, – you know, kind of how, how bad, like, being being shut out and stuff like that, how bad that makes it, you know, kind of the entire team feel. That suggests to me that maybe, like, there's more kind of momentum or whatever you want to call it. There's more streakiness to losing because it's kind of something the entire team does as opposed to winning where you can kind of, you know, essentially have one person, like your starting pitcher, drive that win. So does that make the kind of losing that we're seeing in the Dodgers actually... Um, less or more surprising than the kind of winning we're seeing in the Indians? Um, I think the combination. I, I really think the combination. And, and I think what you see 
with the Indians, for example, the Indians' offense is not built solely on the homer, even though they hit homers. But they, 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 they move runners. They can bunt. They, they, they can hit the ball the other way. You know, they really have more of a pure hitting approach. And, and I personally believe one of the reasons that the streaks, especially losing streaks, are so prevalent, in, in, in the, especially this year, is because of the homer. If you build, like you look at the Orioles, the Orioles were on a hot, hot streak going back about 10 days ago where they put themselves right back in the pennant race, and five days later, six days later, they're out of it. And, and it only took, I mean, it took them all those days to climb back into it. They win a series, they win a series. Now they get on the streak, and, and in, that, in that course of July, they hit more homers than anybody. And now they're on a losing streak. Why? Because they're not hitting homers. So if you, you you can't you can't sustain you can't sustain a level of winning consistently over a long period of time if your offense is solely built on homers. Rick, that's a great point because you know we, uh, we've talked about on we're here on Morton Moneyball many times this season that homers are up, but strikeouts are up. Right. Most people would say that's that's going to lead to higher variance. Or greater streaks. You know, yeah. when you're really hot, you're yeah. hot. I mean, obviously, the mean winning percentage in the MLB is 50%. Someone wins, someone loses each game. But what you're going to get is you're going to get hot streaks. So you get teams with longer winning runs, but you also get longer losing runs. It's an interesting perspective. It really is. And when you look at long losing streaks, I mean, I got to tell you, when you hit a long losing streak, and I haven't really experienced a lot of those over my career, but I've experienced enough of them, it's like to pinpoint to really pinpoint exactly what it what it is, what, what do we need to do to turn this around? I mean, everybody kind of has the answer, but no one really knows the answer because it's just so subtle. And, and you get into this, you know, and I think we all get into it, and it goes back into the mental game. It's like, oh, here we go again. You know, this whole, you know, and, and you, hear, you hear that when you hear interviews, when people start really talking about what their mind is, real, where their mind really is, during those places, and and you get a whole team. <laughs> I mean, imagine the compounded energy of the whole team in a chorus of going, "Here we go again." Here, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and you and you get into that mode. And when you're winning, which is really interesting, people don't want to talk about it. It's like anybody who even thinks about talking about it. It's like, hey, don't talk about it. Come on, you know, like you'll jinx us, you know. And and I think baseball. More particularly baseball, you see so many more quirky type things that people do over periods of time because you do this every day. And, you, and, and you know, imagine like, you know, in your daily life, like when people get into a rut and people go, God, I'm in this, like, I'm in the rut. And it's like, well, what is the rut? And, and, and a lot of it, which is interesting in daily life, a lot of it is compounded around weather. You know, I mean, you, you go through a streak where, like, it's not, it's you know, you don't see the sun for a few days, and people tend to get into this attitude rut, and, and, it, and it's very similar. And, the, and, and then what happens is every, that whole Murphy's Law, everybody starts talking about, like, oh, geez, now the plane's late, the bus isn't there to pick us up, you know, we get to the hotel, you know, our rooms aren't ready, you know. I mean, you, you keep going on and on with all these things that just get compounded. And, and that's what happens in losing streaks and winning streaks. On the other hand, and I think I think the other thing when you watch the Indians play and and when you go back, if you see some tape of of the A's during that twenty game win streak, you know we had a lot of young players, just like like Cleveland does. They have a nice mix, but they also have a lot of young players that are coming up. They're starting to all settle into being. Com, com, 
really productive, competitive major league players, some of them major league stars, and there's this excitement, you know, there's this real excitement about, wow, we really feel good about what we're doing and the, and the progress we're making. I mean, you see it with the Yankees, with Sanchez and, and Judge and, and Hicks when he's right, and then, and, and then now you bring Bird back, and, and you see this excitement about, like, we have something really special here. And then you get people talking about it, how special this whole group is, and the attitude, and Francona does a tremendous job, you know, and, and so does Dave Roberts. He hasn't been able to shake it, though. He hasn't been able to somehow, you know, there's going to be some way that some, something will click to, to somebody in that core, you know, that core leadership group in L.A., and, and then, you know, something good will happen on the field, and before you know it, it'll, it'll spark them again. But when you think about, I mean, just think about it. If you turn the clock back three weeks ago, you know, Cleveland had a nice lead in, in their division. Now they're running away with it. And the Dodgers, arguably, people were talking about the Dodgers. This may be one of the greatest teams in the history of baseball. Really? Well, what happened? Three weeks later, I mean, they didn't have anything significant. They're, they're, they're still the great. They're still this great team, right? I mean, we're talking. We'll, we'll talk with you in two weeks about the playoffs, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about the Dodgers being one of the one of the big favorites. Rick, this has been this has been great as always. Appreciate your having coming on the show and talking about these streaks and the psychology of the good and the bad. And we're going to have you know this time of year is a time of year where we have more and more questions for you. Looking forward to having you back on the show in a couple of weeks. Awesome guys, always a pleasure. All right, that was Rick Peterson, longtime major league pitching coach and uh, author of a recent book published called Crunch Time: How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. We can highly recommend that book. Rick is on here every other week or so during the baseball season. Guys, that is the halfway point. We've done two quarters here on Wharton Moneyball, but we still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Live from Huntsman Hall on the University of Pennsylvania campus where we have a SiriusXM radio studio. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Adi is out and about. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us. We encourage you to join us. The phone number is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or email us businessradio at siriusxm.com. Matt, that's standing by for your email and your phone calls. Businessradio at siriusxm.com. And, and of course, please don't forget our Twitter ha- Twitter handle oh. at wmoneyball, which I've been using very frequently lately. All right, we're building a social media presence. We've got on it sometime this summer. A little slow out of the gate, but we're we're moving now at wmoneyball. We follow our guests there. We periodically punch our own stuff up there. It's uh, hopefully a good place to keep an eye on sports analytics around the world. We're just off the phone with Rick Peterson talking baseball, but this time of year it's football, guys, and we finally get to dive in head first, going to the deep end with Steve Palazzolo, Steve from Pro Football Focus. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, baseball, that's my former life. It's great uh, following a pitching coach as a, as a former pitcher. Yeah, I'd for, you know, I'd forgotten that. So, Steve, we, we, delighted, uh, we were delighted to meet you down in Houston uh, for the Super Bowl. We had a, our first conversation with Steve 
on set down there. And uh, st- if you haven't met Steve, he's a he's a he's a tall tall guy, and he used to be a pitcher. This is like Randy Johnson esque, right? I mean, you you must have you must have struck fear in batters with the size you have, no? I'd like to think so, but I didn't have that, you know, sidewinding left-handed delivery <laughs> or the hundred mile an hour fastball that Randy Johnson had, and and what? that's why I'm doing football now. But uh, yeah, the height, the height <laughs> gave me a shot. It's eight years in the minors, and uh, it kept me around for a little while. Well, um, can you t- can you can you remind our listeners what Pro Football Focus is all about? Because people may not appreciate quite the quite what you guys are doing, and 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 frankly, how how broad your coverage is, and how how deep you are into the industry now. So what's Pro Football Focus all about? Yeah, we, we have many different arms now, you know, different things that we're getting ourselves into. But the, the core of it is, is grading every single player on every play from a production standpoint. So we can get in there and say, hey, that was a great throw by the quarterback, even though it was dropped. So it goes 0 for 1 in the box score. But we're going to give that a, uh, a plus minus grade. So we'll grade between plus 2 and minus 2 at, in 0.5 increments on every single play. Uh, a lot of times zero is just expected or average uh, and essentially you add it up at the end and you've got a, a score for a player and then you add it up at the end of the season you have a, a score for a player and you can tell how well did this guy play in coverage how well did he rush the passer how you know how efficient was this quarterback despite his stats so that's the core of what we do and then we have a whole fantasy department that Steve, that hold, hold on let me dig into that real, real quickly um one who, who does this that's i mean you're grading a lot of players a lot of plays how does that happen yeah, there's, uh, there's about 40 to 45 guys, I think it is right now, that are trained up in this process. It's, it's an extensive process. It started over in England, believe it or not. Uh, a guy named Neil Hornsby founded it a few years ago. There was a small team of guys that did this. They say, look, we just want to get a more in-depth look at what is actually happening on the field. Is this guard actually good, or is he just hyped by the media? So uh, Neil was that crazy guy that said, I'm just going to grade every player on every play, so we have some information there. Um, but as far as this system, uh, you know, it, it's an extensive process. And now it's, it's guys like me that have been trained up in it. But there's also former NFL players. There's former NFL coaches. Uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of NFL type people getting involved in this process at all. Right. And, it, 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 and it's, uh, it's a different thing for them, too, because they're kind of like learning how to see the game through our eyes. Because I don't think anybody's truly done this before. Right. Uh, trying to assess production on both sides of the ball. Steve, a couple other technical questions. In a, from a design, experimental design perspective, we might want multiple graders. Yeah, with with anything that's somewhat subjective like this, you'd want multiple graders, so I would is, assume. Is that something that's baked in? We have, uh, so as many as two people might grade the game live. Uh, they'll each take uh, both sides of the ball. Uh, but we have an extensive review process. So we have a, a team of senior analysts. So about 25% of our analysts are considered senior analysts, and they will get a final look at every single play. Um, so they can make final determinations on, on certain plays. Make it Because, again, our, our top analysts are the guys that truly understand the system inside and out. Um, and we have, you know, we have one guy who goes through and, and checks every quarterback grade. So Got uh, it. the idea of seeing things through the same eyes. And if there's ever a gray area, which there are plenty in football, we'll bring that uh, to the team. We'll bring that to a team of former NFL coaches as well, who we have uh, kind of on call to help out as well and, and try to make determinations that way. Steve, two, two other things that skeptics sometimes bring to this exercise is how do you know what the assignment was? So, so sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's not obvious what a DB was supposed to do or, or what a guard, where he was supposed to be. And the other thing is how do you account for the quality of the player across from them? Yeah, two fantastic questions. I would say as far as the assignment goes, 
you know, there are certainly plays where you just say, look, this is a busted coverage. Right. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's this guy. I think it's this guy, but we're also not going to guess. Um, there's a couple ways that we get around that. A lot of times it's, you know, 10 guys are doing their job and the 11th is clearly not doing his job. A lot of times it's pretty intuitive when something goes wrong. Um, other times it really is difficult. And if that's the case, we might just zero it out. We call it zero it out. Um, we're not going to guess. We're not going to give a guy uh, a negative. So I see. Uh, certainly not claiming perfection anywhere. But we also have plenty of NFL connections. You know, we have 29 of 32 NFL teams taking our information and data. So if we truly need to know what's going on at a play, we have uh, the ability to do so. And as far as competition level, I think this is a fascinating one as far as uh, assessing players. You know, uh, it would be easy to say, okay, Joe Thomas is the best left tackle in the NFL. Therefore, if you pick up three pressures against him, uh, we're going to adjust for that and say, well, now you're going to get six or seven against a bad offensive tackle. But football doesn't really work that way. So we don't change our grades based off competition. We, we grade it all the same exact way, but we do have an analytics team that can go through later on and kind of put numbers to it. So we try to, we try to grade through the same eyes and say, look, Joe Thomas is Joe Thomas. We're going we're gonna to treat him just like a rookie offensive tackle, uh, have the same level of expectations for those guys and then kind of let guys run numbers behind the scenes and say, okay, when Joe Thomas gets beat, it is actually worth more. It is more difficult. So uh, the grading system doesn't change, but I do think it brings better perspective when you could say, hey, this guy got pressures against this good tackle, uh, but he actually struggled against the bad tackle. Sometimes it doesn't always match up to what you would think. Steve, this is Eric Broadlow. I have a quick question. Is this something that you can score using video or watching TV, or do you need to be there live at the game? Because like, a lot of times in football, you don't see what happens a lot of times away from the ball. So how is that done? Oh, yeah, it, it's all on video. It, it, it would be impossible to do in person. Uh, we do a first run off of broadcast, which, you know, thanks to HD and widescreen, you could see uh, really, uh, you know, the majority of what you need to see. And then all of our review process does, does take place with the coach's film. So um, I always like to say we take every camera angle available and we use it. So it starts in broadcast, goes through the coach's film. And uh, a lot of times I have to review a play about, you know, rewind about 10 different times to, to try to catch everything that's going, going on there. And maybe one just follow-up question. What do you guys do with injuries? So, um, like, for example, Obviously, you can't get a score if you're not on the field. But do you kind of normalize it like, you know, Joe Tom? Well, I don't want to use Joe Thomas. I think the guy I just heard the other day has played 10,000 consecutive snaps or something (laughs) like that. He's never been injured. He's never missed a snap. He's literally played every snap of every game that he's ever played. you know he's ever played. Literally, has never missed Does a snap. Metal legs? Is that the way I, it works? I, I guess, given the position he plays, that's remarkable. But how do you deal with not being on the field? Do you normalize this in some way, like per play that the person was on the field, and then a separate statistic or measure that talks about how many plays they played? So, so as far as our play-by-play grading, we try to focus on what is happening on the field. And again, I think we can go back and kind of. Uh, you know, kind of bake that into other numbers. So our, uh, you know, we, we start with this plus minus system and then we convert it to a zero to 100, try to make it a little bit more of a consumable number. So if you say a guy's a 90, you know, that's elite. If he's 90 or above on the zero to 100 scale, the way that works is if you play a 16 game schedule, uh, you have, you're more likely to be able to hit the top ends of that range, so to speak. Whereas if you play elite football for say eight games, it's probably going to be harder because it's a smaller sample size. We'll kind of uh, expect some regression to the mean there. So you might play elite for eight games and you might be only saying 85. So um, the numbers do account for that a little bit. Um, but I also think it's one of those, 
it's difficult because I want to know how well did a guy play when he was on the field and then almost a separate number that says, yeah, that's... okay, well, how valuable was that to the team? Because if you do miss eight games, clearly you're not bringing value to the team during those eight games. So we're talking to Steve Palazzolo. Steve is a senior analyst at Pro Football Focus. Pro Football Focus has kind of revolutionized uh, player evaluation, at least by third parties. And one of the reasons we're talking to them is that they, they, are, they have been wildly successful. Almost every NFL team is subscribing to their data. We know from working in the industry that they're having an influence with these organizations. Steve, what what are some things that you guys have learned or shown or found that prove that the average fan or the layperson or maybe even coaches were getting wrong before you came in and looked at players at this level of granularity? Well, I think the big thing for us is, you know, for years, offensive line play was kind of like the the frontier that nobody had ever been able to truly tap into. For years, people would say, hey, you know, this guy's a franchise left tackle. Let's, let's pick him top five overall. And as long as he showed up on the field and played, it, you know, Joe Thomas has been outstanding. He showed up and played. But if you have a guy like Joe Thomas who just shows up to play and doesn't get hurt and he starts 16 games, I think people assumed that that guy was good right. for the most part because there were no stats. There was no way to break them down. All of a sudden, we came out and said, you know what? This guy's actually not that good. Or he's actually a really good run blocker but not a good pass blocker. Right. And – um, I think that's one of those things where we started to say, okay, you know what? A linebacker has 100 tackles, but where are those tackles taking place? Is he actually shedding blocks? Does he actually lose his gap and run support all the time? Is he just making those tackles 20 yards down the field? So um, I think just taking some either positions like offensive line that did not have stats or evaluation and adding that to the mix or taking positions like linebacker where if you just, same thing, if you just play 16 games, you're probably going to get 100 tackles if you just play 16 right. games. But it doesn't mean that you played linebacker at a high level. So I think that was those are some of the ways we've kind of I don't want to use the word I don't want to use cracked the code, but maybe changed perception as far as certain positions go. And this is Shane Jensen. Uh, do, has there been a particular position or, or, or circumstance that you guys have found exceptionally difficult to grade? over the last couple of years? I mean, maybe it is still offensive line and you guys just do it better than anybody else, or maybe, maybe there's some other position or circumstance that basically is the biggest challenge to your Raiders. Yeah, it's funny because uh, offensive linemen in the NFL, uh, a lot of them are very outspoken about our grading of, of the offensive line, and, and they come back to the, you don't know what we're asked to, to do, but I do think our offensive and defensive line grading, because it's uh, you know, it, it's up to 60, 70 direct interactions in a, uh, in a game. Um, I think they're pretty good. We get really good sample sizes of what's right. a good block, what's a bad block, and I think we do a good job there. I think the further you get away from the ball, so when you talk about safeties, uh, they can be challenging sometimes because um, it's very difficult to – we try not to just assign, you know, blame for a safety if we think he busted the coverage and the ball doesn't even go there. You know, it's it's because you – truly have different reads and you have different assignments for safeties so a lot of times we're, we're stuck with uh what i call action plays where maybe they're targeted or they're directly right. involved in the action so you get a much smaller sample size with interesting safeties. and to a into a different point sometimes cornerbacks you get a very small sample size even though on tape you can see them play man coverage but if you have a zone heavy team you might not see a whole lot from a cornerback in a given game. Well, Steve, you're, you're, that was I was going to ask you a different question. This is Eric Bradlow again, but now I have to ask you a question based on what you just said. Let's imagine you have a cornerback, let's call him the Deion Sanders of quarterbacks, that's such a shutdown corner 
No one even, and maybe this is what your point is, this is why you need uh, you know, pro football focus, is that the person's doing their job at every play, but the standard metrics of passes batted down or interceptions, yeah, well, you never threw the ball at the guy. So <laughs> this may be the classic argument for why you need to be graded on every play, and doing well where you shut down a guy, that's valuable. Yeah, and that's something we, we've continued to add different processes as well because, uh, you know, through the years, a lot of our quarterback analysis has been uh, action play driven, and we're looking to do a little bit more and say, you know, for that Deion Sanders type, hey, he was only targeted one time, but was he truly in tight coverage that entire time? So that's something we're continuing to look to expand. But, uh, you know, that is kind of the age-old question. Everybody loves to debate our numbers all the time with a guy like Richard Sherman versus, say, Patrick Peterson, and Patrick Peterson will go play man coverage against opposing top wide receivers. Richard Sherman will stay on one side the entire time. I'm not downplaying what Sherman does. He is outstanding at what he does. But there, and, and sometimes he'll go track opposing top wide receivers, but there's an element of, uh, you know, he's, he's good at what he does and he's comfortable at what he does, and maybe Patrick Peterson takes on a little bit more difficult role, and those are the challenges that we're always looking to uh, you know, get better at and unlock, uh, you know, different keys to, to what makes a successful defensive back. Let me ask you one more statistics question just quickly. Um, when you track a player, what do teams care about the most? And let me give you an example. Do they care about someone's mean performance, max performance, or the variance in their performance? Yeah, or worst. Or worst, or min. Which, which, I mean, you could, comp- since you guys are scoring every play, I could look at a whole distribution of scores. What seems to have the most business impact for teams when they're looking at your data? It's a great question. Uh, To be honest, we work with 29 teams. It is 29 different styles and ways of doing business. That's been the most fascinating thing to me. That's surprising. That is surprising. It's such a copycat league, and there's so much influence, you know? I mean, the people off the Belichick tree kind of do things Belichickian. I I, I was shocked by it because I just assumed, well, the NFL – we're going to give them our data and they're going to do this with it. And then I get in there and I'm in these meetings and they're like, hey, we love this, but we don't use this much. Other teams are doing the complete opposite. Some wow. teams are really, really good at what they do on the analytics side. And to be honest, other teams are just scratching the surface. So I don't have a clean answer on that, but I will say we have an internal analytics team that's doing some really great work. And we found, you know, I think it varies by position. I think, say, a cornerback's top end play might be more predictive of, of his future play. You know, I, I, think, I think that's the way to break it down. Each position's a little bit different. I've seen some quarterbacks where their top-end play is actually the most important thing. A guy like Jameis Winston, a guy like Cam Newton, their top-end play is outstanding, but they have some bad play in there. Those are the types of guys that in a given season, they can just mitigate the poor plays just enough, and all of a sudden you have a 2015 Cam Newton who's an MVP candidate. So that's what I would say. You've got... The, the high-variance quarterbacks, Cam Newton, Jameis Winston, Carson Palmer, in any given season, they could put it together and play high-level football. And those are the types of insights that we're just now kind of scratching the surface. That's right. Uh, and thank you for making my day to, and mentioning my guy, Jameis Winston. I, I'm a big Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. I really appreciate that, Steve. I keep touting him. as I'm going to call him a breakout guy. Any given year, he's going to be a top-five quarterback. I'm going to keep saying it until he's about year 15 into the NFL. <laughs> We've got Steve Palazzolo on the line from Pro Football Focus. We've been talking about how they do their business. They do charting and evaluation of players. They do. I want to hear a little bit later in the show about college as well. But first, we did start the NFL season this year and um, this week, and we've got a very interesting crop of rookie running backs. Running backs is one of this position that a lot, you know, going back especially to those great Bronco 
teams with Terrell Davis, people started believing, you know, you kind of put anybody back there in front of the right scheme and you can make an average back look great. You guys are pretty well situated to answer that question. What is your assessment on running backs? How much differentiation do you see? How dependent are they? How influenced are they by, you know, a good offensive line? How much, for example, last year, Ezekiel Elliott running behind the Cowboys line with all those top draft picks, how much was him versus yeah, how much he, was the he, line? if he'd actually served a suspension, would Darren McFadden been doing the same thing that he's doing right now? Yeah, I would say when you look at – let's talk Zeke and, and McFadden. I would say there's this element – like you know, the Cowboys offensive line can get you so far. So, you know, McFadden rushed for 1,000 yards two years ago in their four-win season – and uh, they made him look reasonable as far as stats go. I do think Zeke still takes that to the next level. So, you know, in theory, if the offensive line gives you three yards to, to work with, McFadden might pick up seven, Zeke might pick up 15. You know, I think that would be the difference uh, as far as those guys. And um, That's a pretty big offense, difference. And it, it is a big difference. But if you didn't see Zeke and you just looked at McFadden and you'd say, hey, here's a guy, he averaged, you know, 4.4 per carry. That's a reasonable season uh you could say you know that's that's very offensive line dependent and then you kind of see that next level like here's zeke and he's turning those three yard four yard five yard gains into eight seven you know eight nine ten um you know that that does end up being a difference so i I think the the offensive line is a factor they can get you to a certain point but the really good running backs will get you beyond that uh you know last year was a different example it was jay ajaye from uh, the miami dolphins he had a terrible offensive line and I, i don't think i've seen a guy do more with less blocking in front of him Is that right? than Ajayi did last year. He was he led the league in yards after contact per rush, and you could see it on tape. There were so many plays where you just paused it for a second and said, this play should get no yardage. Right. And before you know it, it's 12. So um, I think it goes back and forth. Sometimes running backs can make offensive lines look good. Other times the offensive line can get you to a certain point. And uh, the you know the deeper dive into our data, I think, has a lot of that information. Steve, the way you just described that made me wonder about the role of motion motion tracking data moving forward. So you, 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 you described a process where you could almost say, okay, given a situation with the running backs, given you know the, the, how close people are to him, the size of the hole, whatever, where he is, we would expect, we've seen, you know, with motion tracking data, you could have this precisely. We've seen a zillion running backs in this situation. We expect 2.2 yards from now. Yep. And, and then you could evaluate very precisely. You guys are kind of doing that based on your expertise and what you're and what you and what you know. Do yeah. you see a future where you you use you or somebody uses motion tracking data to take it to the next level? Yeah, that's something uh, we've we've kind of gotten our hands on at times. We have a feel for what that looks like. It's just a matter of uh, getting the entire data set. The, the motion tracking is a fascinating thing because uh, you know last I heard about it, they just kind of throw the data at the NFL, and right? To be honest, the NFL is still tapping into what we're giving them. We give them something like 180 fields of data, and they're still just using a fraction of that, uh, 180 fields of data per play uh, of information that we're bringing. They're just barely scratching the surface there. Right. So they're not even scratching the surface on the motion tracking, but I do think that is a great way of the future. The way we can do it, too, is we, we say, look, this is an outside zone concept where your front side blockers you know, created – you know, really good space, but your backside blockers, you know, failed and they did a poor job. And you can kind of, I love the way you described it. How many times has the running back been in that situation? And what is the expectation? That's the type of stuff that our data can already do. And then you add the motion tracking in there. And 
you know, get an estimate of where guys are. I think it, I think it'd be a great way to uh, down the future assess running backs and really all positions in their own unique way. Right. Yeah, Steve. This is Eric Bradlow once again. Um, a lot of questions people ask about running backs or the lures. This person's getting stronger as the game is going on. I have teams ask you guys to analyze that phenomenon since you're scoring every player on every play. You could actually look conditional on the play around him. Is this player? getting stronger as the game's going on? Are you getting higher scores? Do you guys look at within-game trends as well as overall? Yeah, we. so it's all there. I don't know that we've actually done it yet. I mean, we're sitting on this um, you know, 11-year database of NFL information, four-year database of college information. And, and to be honest, we're, just, we're also just scratching the surface on what we're pulling out of it. Um, I don't know that teams have asked us that specific question. My feeling is, like a lot of things, uh, it probably evens out. It probably depends on the running back. Maybe there's a couple guys that are a little bit better. Uh, you know, just like quarterbacks, maybe Tom Brady's a little bit better in the fourth quarter than most. Or is he just Tom Brady in the fourth quarter, which is still better than everyone else? Chances are it probably just evens out over time. Right. Steve, there was, uh, there were some good running back performances, even by rookies. But one really caught people's eye because it was the first game in the big upset. So you also do college football analytics. I'm curious, how surprised were you by Kareem Hunt's performance? Many people hadn't heard of Kareem Hunt before he did what we, he did to the Pats. We weren't surprised at all. He was the top-graded running back in our play-by-play system last year in college football. We loved Kareem Hunt. Now, that is outstanding. You loved him more than uh, Leonard Fournette and Dalvin Cook? And Joe well, Mixon? And Joe Mixon? So let me describe what that means, because on a pure production standpoint, he was the top-graded running back. Now, when we go back and we put a draft board together, we do take other things into consideration. We will look a little bit at athleticism and style uh, in, in competition level. You know, he was in the MAC and he dominated the MAC at Toledo. So I think ultimately he ended up becoming our number five running back on the draft board. Maybe I was wrong for putting him that low, but... Um, we did, you know, we do reshuffle things, but as far as pure production goes, and this is why I'm saying we still have to know exactly what those college grades mean. I don't think it's this perfect linear, you know, transition to the NFL where your top college guy is going to be your top NFL guy. But I think we've already found in our grading, there's a lot of, Hey, if this guy grades below a certain level, don't even look at him with the NFL, or if he's above a certain level, I don't care what his measurables are or how short he is or how, fat you think he looks in a uniform he's going to produce so we're getting to that point and i think kareem hunt is one of those guys where you say look he just graded above a certain level i don't care that it was the mac i don't care what he did he was productive he knows how to break tackles he's really productive out of the backfield this guy's going to be successful so we weren't surprised and maybe we actually underrated him when i went back and put our draft board together well it's a fascinating challenge you have you know comparing how he Comparing him coming out of Toledo and who they played versus, say, a comparable – Leonard Fournette's just a different kind of back, but say Dalvin Cook, who yep. played in a very tough division, the Atlantic, the, the ACC Atlantic. And, I mean, this, that, they're incomparable in many ways. And so that's, yeah. a big, that's a big challenge going forward. It's an interesting one, and it's kind of a secret code that many teams are trying to crack. Is what, how do you know what translates and what doesn't translate? Right. Look, we've only got we've only gone back to 2014 as far as college goes. All right. What I've seen so far is uh, the, our top end guys. So we've we've found guys just from a pure grading standpoint. Trey Flowers of the New England Patriots. He was a guy we said, look, he's a first round production type of guy. That's how he played on the field. He went in the fourth round. He is pretty much their best defensive lineman now. Had three sacks in the Super Bowl. He's played closer to a first round level. 
Uh, Grady Jarrett of the Atlanta Falcons, same thing. He graded so high in college. We said he's a first-round production type of player, defensive tackle. He's undersized. The NFL is going to neglect him a little bit. He only went in the fifth round. He's another guy that's probably played at about a first-round level since he's come out. So I would say the guys so far that have dominated in our system from in college have fared very well. On the other hand, there are guys who we just said, look, we would never draft these guys. Um, and we've seen a lot of those guys get drafted and not even make it out of training camp. So I think very early, you know, three years into this, what we're seeing is the guys at the extreme ranges were onto something, and now we're trying to do a better job position by position in the middle ranges saying, okay, what is it about these guys that will translate to the NFL? So always a work in progress for us and NFL teams. So, Steve, this is an interesting quarterback class coming out of the, of the of, uh, college this year. Do you have any early takes on the prospects for those guys? They're, they're, they're guys all over the country at all levels. Um, anybody you think is overrated? Anybody think is underrated? Who should we, if we're pro football fans, but we want to know the next crop of quarterbacks, who should we be paying attention to on Saturdays? Oh man, this is, it's a fascinating year for quarterbacks. There's, I think there's about seven guys that have first round type of potential. Yep. Uh, you know, this 2017 season will determine whether or not they get there. Yep. Uh, I am a big fan of Sam Darnold out of USC. I know he's gotten a lot of hype as the top guy. Yep. Uh, his feel for the, uh, his middle of the field feel is nfl caliber he needs to work on his deep ball though can i, can uh, I so say I like he's Donald. also got he's also got the kind of ben roethlisberger he kind of he gets bumped around the pocket but doesn't get knocked down and then this rocket yep. arm yeah he's tough he is absolutely tough and still young he's only started about 12 games in his right. career. he's a red shirt freshman last season uh josh rosen gets plenty of hype at ucla yeah. as well i had to kind of pull uh pull people back off that crazy comeback against texas a&m since it it stemmed from him throwing the ball right to a safety and getting lucky. But <laughs> right. you know, he did a great job of, of bouncing back. He was outstanding last weekend against Hawaii. He yep. has all the tools. He'll have some off-field stuff to answer, I believe. But, uh, you know, Rosen's up there. I think Mason Rudolph out of Oklahoma State is a very good prospect. You know, Lamar Jackson from Louisville. That's a fascinating uh, one, right? It's a, it is a fascinating one. And I, I hate to compare him to Michael Vick. I don't do a whole bunch of Michael Vick comparisons, but – from the standpoint of he's a special athlete that can be a game-changing athlete at the NFL level, but also has to tie up his accuracy a little bit. There's a lot of Vic there. So I think he's a guy that you can win with. And he is still very young as a passer. He continues to get better. Yep. Um, but there's a lot. Josh Allen is probably the guy out of Wyoming who is absolutely tantalizing as far as that, his athleticism and arm. He makes Aaron Rodgers types of throws. Okay. Just doesn't do it consistently enough. He misses too many as well. Okay. Um, he's probably the guy that's overhyped right now just because ah. he needs to be more accurate. Um, and then I think the most fascinating guy is Baker Mayfield. I, th- I wonder if you're going to come around to him. All right, tell us what, you, what your take is on Mayfield. I, I'm around to him. He's the guy that I want to dismiss. I, I'm trying to dismiss him. I would him. love to. to he's, look- a, he's a Sooner. Can we please? Can we please <laughs> dismiss him? <laughs> I'm looking for any reason. Oh, he's too short. And, you know, he got arrested this offseason and all these different things. But when he is on the field, it is very tough to find uh, with something he does not do well. He just has a great feel for finding open guys. He's very accurate. He makes plays inside of structure, outside of structure. He's going to be the fascinating guy because for a shorter quarterback, uh, he, he plays at such an exceptional level. You know, there's something there. What I say about Mayfield is like, I just don't want to be the guy that doubts him. I don't want to be the guy that doubts him. And then he proves me wrong. So until he proves me wrong on the field, production wise, I'm a believer in Mayfield. Maybe not in the first round, but man, he's a guy I want on my football team he's, at the next level. He's got a quality. I'm curious how you evaluate this this ability to keep a play alive. 
um, it seems it seems really important. And how do you guys think about that? So just the from a pure like pocket, even a pocket guy, even a pocket guy needs to have both presence and some athleticism. And quarterbacks differ on that pretty dramatically. It seems very important. It, it, it's extremely important. And I'll, I'll say this: I'll compare not Baker to Tom Brady, but if you look at Tom Brady the last couple of years, he's gotten better statistically. He's gotten better in our PFF system. Last year, Brady was the number one graded quarterback. Uh, throw for throw in the entire NFL, even better than Matt Ryan, who had better stats. But the thing that Brady has gotten better at, and he actually said this in an interview back in 2014, he said, look, I'm not Aaron Rodgers, I'm not Russell Wilson, but if I can get a little bit more out of plays, if I can extend plays, if right. I can find a way to make a, like one or two extra plays per game, right. it would take my game to the next level. And it truly did. You know, And the way we break it down, his numbers, when a play lasts 2.6 seconds or more, which is you know, Tom Brady's a quick passing guy, likes to get the ball out of his hand. His numbers in those situations, those longer developing plays, used to be terrible. Hmm. Uh, and they actually were terrible the other night against Kansas City. But as far as last year goes, uh, he found a way to uh, – he was the number two rated passer as far as passer rating goes on those longer plays. And that's Tom Brady, the you know, the slow statue in the pocket. He found right. a way to extend plays. And, and Baker Mayfield absolutely has that. You want to see that combination, a guy that can win when he has the open receiver early – and a guy that can extend plays uh, and make plays outside of structure. Baker Mayfield absolutely has that, and uh, definitely a crucial part of playing NFL quarterback. Well, we saw one of the great highlights of the first week in the NFL was Carson Wentz's shucking three, four tacklers and chucking that ball downfield for the TD. Wentz is a you know kind of a perennial parlor game for the last year, and especially here locally. What's your take on Wentz? Yeah, I think Wentz uh, still has room to grow. I, I thought it was a good rookie season. He started out great last year, really outstanding. I think he started to hit some better defenses. Also, the offensive line let him down a little bit right around week five or six, and I think that his performance went down as well. Um, I think he's got this big cannon for an arm that he could use a little bit more. I, I think he does probably his best work in the short game, he needs to get a little bit more accurate over the middle of the field. And when he was coming out, I thought he'd be a guy that could drive the ball down the field a little bit more consistently I thought that play on Sunday was a great example of it. Um, if, I, if he does that a little bit more, then we're talking about moving him toward the top echelon of quarterbacks. But that's, the, that's where I want to see him improve. He's been pretty good in the quick game. It's that those downfield throws being a little bit more consistent in that area. Wonderful. All right, Steve, thanks for the time this morning. Really appreciate it, and keep up the great work. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. You bet. That was Steve Palazzolo. Steve is senior analyst at Pro Football Focus, fantastic organization, doing player evaluations and other interesting things, selling into basically the entire NFL. You can follow Steve. I can tell you he's a great Twitter follow, at PFF underscore Steve, at PFF underscore Steve. That was Steve Palazzolo. And that was three quarters here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. We're rolling into the fourth and final quarter of our show. Cade Massey here hosted, hosting, co-hosting with my buddies Shane and Eric. You guys can join us. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. 1-844-942-7866. Open lines this half hour. Talking college football. Talking pro football. What's going to happen this weekend. You can also email us businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Just off the phone with Pro Football Focus's Steve Palazzolo. My God, that was fun. Could talk to that guy all day. 
Oh, it's so fascinating. And I mean, I would I would love to just sort of sit and be a fly on the wall while they're grading some of these things, you know, just to sort of see how it all works. The, I, was, I was also thrilled to hear that, you know, um, you know, I remember 20 years ago when the analytics of other sports than baseball were coming out, very well-known guy um, that worked with Shane Reese, by the way, at BYU, his name's Gil Fellingham, has been doing analytics and sports for a mm-hmm. long time, said, if you want to do analytics and sports, you've got to grade every player on every play. And it's really great to hear that pro football focus is now doing that. And maybe it's the that. most important to do that in football, where there is so, exactly. so much interaction, so much interplay between positions, so much so, much, so many schemes, etc., etc. Well, et it's interesting. So Gil was doing it originally with volleyball. So mm-hmm. I just want to say, he would be out there with yep. Raiders and his Kadast, multiple Raiders, yep. on every volleyball play. They would score every player on every play. And similarly, you could imagine there being large interactions in volleyball. You know, I can't spike the ball over the net. The person that sets the ball gives me a bad set. Yeah, and I mean, and this is sort of what makes, for example, hockey, I think, such a hard thing to evaluate analytically because it is it, there is such a teamwork component to it. Um, and there are so many interaction effects, but then it's also in continuous time. So there's not even sort of like like you would have to somehow be doing this, conti- you know, con- essentially continue. Like, how would you have this score kind of continually? Yeah, as the opposed to like to, they play just, by play. Yeah, the they hardest discretize in some yeah. way, right? Probably every. I think they like every puck every time they contest it. Like in soccer, it's every time the ball's contested. Right, right. But I also want to go back to what Cade said earlier, which makes it still, even if you had uh, motion data, makes it still a hard problem. Like, I was talking to my son yesterday who plays high school soccer, and a goal got scored by the other team. He's the center back. You could argue every goal that's scored is your fault. And he said, actually, this one wasn't mine. There were others that were mine, but not this one, because that wasn't my assignment. Like, I wasn't supposed to be there. And so Cade brought up the interesting part uh, to Steve, which is, how do you know what the call was? How do you know what the yeah. assignment was on the play? And so that's the part that I, I still find is going to be hard to score people on I every play. The, I, I think the deal is that most of the time, for most of the players, you know, you can tell what the assignment is. That's yeah. their answer. And so as, as data people, we have to say, that's fine. Yeah. You know, if you're covering 90% of situations, you're still going to get a lot of signal yeah. out of that data. It's not a reason not to collect the yeah, data. That's right. So we have uh, college, some, a few college football games. We're a little spoiled. We had a good, good opening weekend because that's the way they're set up these days. We had a phenomenal Saturday night for week two this past weekend. This weekend's a little thinner. We've, the, the marquee game is, is Clemson at Louisville. These are two of the big three in the uh, ACC, and they're even in the same division, the ACC. If Clemson clears this hurdle, that's one of the big ones out of the way. They also have to play Florida State. Louisville could prove themselves. This was a monster game last year. Louisville dropped it. Um, is Louisville more – people are kind of sleeping on Louisville a little bit. Mm-hmm. Lamar Jackson, Heisman Trophy winner two years ago, lost some interest last year, but he's put a lot of effort in his game. This is a big stage for him. You How guys, does Massey Peabody see Clemson-Louisville? Well, we have Clemson number three in the country, and uh, they're plus 24. So strong score from those guys in Louisville. We have about number 11, plus 17. So on a neutral field, we make it a seven-point game, but this game is in Louisville. So it's like a three or four point game. Well, Clemson minus yeah, three. This is a real. This is a solid. This is a solid game. That's 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 TV worthy for sure. Um, USC Texas. <laughs> is that but, TV worthy, Kate? No, avoid it at all costs. <laughs> Avert your eyes. It's Texas. I mean, I mean, what what what's the current point spread in that? Fifteen. Open fifteen. That seems 15, high 15 to me as, yeah, as much as. I mean, I watched Texas get wrecked in the first week. Me but, too. 
Um, I mean, that's still. I mean, it's. It, I still think that's a big point spread for this game, I think it's a big point spread, too, but I am worried about what Texas can do. I come out of watching Texas for two weeks and then watching SC Saturday night against Stanford and Sam Darnold, number one pro prospect in the whole in the whole uh, FBS, and I, wor- and I worry. But the last time I was convinced, convinced that Texas was going to lose a big game was against OU and four or five, four, four or five years ago, and Texas not only covered, but they won. Yeah. I don't trust myself evaluating the Longhorns. You just you, Anybody who's tied up emotionally with the team yeah, can't, no, can't I, be trusted I, I get to that. I get that, too. It's going to come up later when we talk about the Patriots, I'm sure. But the, it's a, it would have been, before the season, people thought this was going to be one of the great games of the year. Yeah, what would the spread have been had they played week one? Like, what were the opening Massey Peabody ratings for these two teams? Would it have been like a maybe an eight to nine point spread for USC, given it's at USC? Like, they're a five point favorite, roughly. We've had, USC has drifted up a little bit for us. They're probably you know, three points higher, two, three points higher than they were. So make them a 17 or 18. Texas has drifted down some. Um, they might have been 15, 14. And so it would have been three-point three, three point difference on a neutral field, maybe six or so, something like that. So it's real, So the Massey-Peabody system might say that, I mean, in some sense, the betting line right now, which is obviously not Massey-Peabody, has basically moved nine points away from the original. We, we still don't like them. We still think the line's too big. That's but, what I'm saying. But, but, you know, what do we know? These guys who, if you've watched Texas play pass defense this year, you might worry how they're going to do against Sam Darnold. Our model just, you know, it sees some things that doesn't see everything. But I don't know. I got to trust the model. If I had to place a bet, if you force me to place a bet, I'll take Texas because we make the line, you know, eleven or something. I assume you'll be tuning in regardless, if not for if, if just for the Rose Bowl highlights. You know, <laughs> I assume the, they'll show those Rose Bowl highlights from many and, years and ago. And as you know, by the way, one apparently, of the greatest games ever played. Well, apparently, it was one of the greatest games ever played. But as you guys know, apparently USC has never lost to Texas. Oh God, this is fascinating. They've never in, lost in, in the regular. No, season. ever. This is, that game was vacated because of something, oh, and so man, USC actually on. tweeted this week. No, no, exists. but USC this is the NCAA. U, U, this is the NCAA. No, USC tweeted this week. Glad that we're playing Texas, who we're four and zero against. And everyone was like, "What? <laughs> you lost the most important possible game to Texas. What are you talking about?" And so the fact that they would even say they're four zero against Texas, I watched yeah. that game and they lost that no, game on the field. Like officially NCAA sanctioned, reviewed, approved. Technically, they're four zero. They're four zero. It's incredible. Tennessee, Florida also plays this week, and that's a it's kind of a rival. That is a rivalry game. Tennessee considers it one of their two big rivalry games. The other one being Alabama. Um, this is a big game in the SEC East. It's not clear who's going to emerge from the SEC East. Georgia's probably the favorite, but these are the other two big contenders. Um, we have, interestingly, we have these games, we have the teams ranked neck and neck. These are our number 26 and 27 teams in the country. They're about plus 10. This game is in Florida, I believe. So it we, is in Florida. We would make it about a three-point game. I'm not sure four what the line half. is. Four and a half. Florida four by half. four and a half? Florida by four and a half. Okay, so we don't see much of an edge there. But that'll be a fun one to watch. We're always kind of wondering, is Tennessee back? We're always wondering, does Florida have an offense? So maybe one of these teams will step up and kind of separate itself. Any interest in the, does, does, whether it's Massey, Peabutters, LSU at Mississippi State? I mean, they're both 2-0. and o. This has LSU as a seven-point favorite, which must mean ten or eleven on a neutral field. Um, is there? Any, I mean, Mississippi State has not been a bad team the last couple of years. Yeah, that's right. And they 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 did they didn't. I don't remember who they played week one, but they blew out a kind of a Louisiana Tech or Northeast something not very impressive last week. But they, you know, it's tough to be in the SEC West. They have an entirely decent club, but they lose a lot of games because they play one of the toughest schedules every year. We have them number twenty-one. 
and uh, almost 13, almost a plus 13, but we love LSU. We have mm-hmm. LSU fourth in the country at 23, 23 and a half. So we'd make it 10 points on a neutral field. They're in Baton Rouge, so we're going to make it a 13 or 14 point game. That's way, a big spread. By the way, if you, no, I, I actually, I think the game's at Mississippi State. Oh, we're going to flip it around, it's, so it's like seven, that's, seven. That's exactly the line. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you want to feel bad, they've played nobody the first two weeks. If you want to feel bad for Mississippi State, here's their next three games. They're home to LSU, at Georgia, at Auburn. I mean, this is getting bad to worse. And, and, that, and somewhere in the distance is Alabama's Alabama. coming. But the good yeah. news is they're home to Alabama, so you don't have to worry about that <laughs> well, game. Right, right. But just, li- I mean, their they're next three games, forget their first two, LSU, Georgia, and Auburn. That's some yeah. serious business. Well, yeah. so, I, you know, to, to – conference to, is serious. To plug, to plug the horns, the horns in the next few weeks have USC, Oklahoma State, and Oklahoma. I think those, oh, are, those are easy. Three games. of the next four games are against top ten teams. I mean, well, we have Oklahoma State. We don't like them as much as the rest of the world does, but we have them at about seventeen. Guys, I know that you um, are most worked up about the NFL, and I think we probably have a little bit stronger slate than the NFL. So, why don't we go to a regular feature here on Wharton Moneyball? So this is something we got back to last week after being away for a few months. It's good to be back. Good to be back. To it. A regular feature here on Wharton Moneyball in the final stretch of our show. Let's look a look. Let's take a look at the slate of games. Talk through a few big ones. Make some picks on what we think is going to happen. Well, I'm always happy to start here. Um, a couple games I'll just dismiss quickly, but I feel it's worth talking about. I would love it to talk about the Patriots at the Saints as my Moneyball matchup to see when the Patriots go 0-2, how much we're all going oh, to deflate yeah. <laughs> the Patriots. But I'm not going to talk about that one. Nice. You've been saving that line? I've been saving that line. I'd Great. love to talk about the Vikings at the Steelers, which, you know, interestingly, is an interesting game between two teams that people think, but that's not the game I'm going to talk about either. I'd hey, love Eric, you can talk about more than one game. It's okay. We, we... All right. Well, let me pick the one I'm going to talk about, and I have an interesting question for you guys. Of course, it's going to be the Bears and the Buccaneers, but let me say why it's going to be that game. You are the only person in we Philadelphia. Should da- da- we should definitely talk about that. You should talk about that <laughs> well, game because I, I, I was know, not I want to ask you guys a question. There's a statistical question here. Do we agree that rest for a team in general is a good thing? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So the Buccaneers, because of the game being mm-hmm. postponed last week, have not played. On the other hand, this is your two-process theory, Shane. On the one hand, the Buccaneers are more rested. But on the other hand, they haven't been able to, let's call it, iron out the kinks of starting the season. The Bears played. They played well, actually. The Bears should have beaten the Falcons last week. Didn't win the game. That's fine. Which of those two processes do you think is more important? Like, if the Buccaneers had played last week, would you give them a better chance yes. to beat the Bears yes. this week? I would. Okay, well, so that was my question. That's think, why that game caught well, my eye. Because I don't eye. think they really rested those poor players. They're probably, like, getting their family out of Dodge and stuff. Like, it wasn't really a legit bye week. That's right. Good point. Also, it's less valuable a bye week when you haven't played. It's a bye in week eight yeah. is actual rest. You're, they want to play at this point. Yeah. Plus that first game. I mean, that first game. What coaches always say: there's more learning between week one and two. And than this what, is an empirical. Yeah. This is an empirical thing. Does um is uh does the bye week when it normally occurs? Does the bye week actually help? Teams. Yes. We, yes. We, okay. we, it, it's like half of it's it's we, it's like three quarters of a point or something. Okay. We have it explicitly. That's a pretty big effect. It. Yeah. It's not trivial. We we have it. In yeah. For sure. Okay. Um. Uh. But what, are they going to make up that game? 
They are. Yeah. So the game is now, on, this is a bad, bad thing for the Bucks. The game is being made up in week 11. It turns out they both had a bye week, even though when there were different conferences, different divisions, obviously. Um, they're making it up in week 11 when they both had a bye week. So the Bucks and That's Dolphins crazy. will not have a bye. And also for the Brutal. Bucks, it means three straight road games now. So they're, for the first time like ever, they're playing three. They should st- just call it a tie. They should just call it a tie. They're calling three straight play. road games. But let's be serious. The game that we should all be talking about. And to show you how hard their season has been, is Packers at Falcons. I mean, the Packers started at home last week against the Seahawks, mm-hmm. not a trivial game. They're now going to the Super Bowl. I'm sorry, I meant the NFC champions, yeah. the Falcons. The Falcons, I think, lost the Super Bowl. Um, that's a huge game. And interestingly, they have the Falcons are favored by two and a half, so neutral on an even field. I mean, that's a... That's a titanic game. Can you imagine if the Packers win that game? Think about the tiebreakers. They will have now beaten the Seahawks and the Falcons, which, forget they'll be 2-0. and they, I mean, those tiebreakers, I understand it's just yeah. week one, week two. I wouldn't mind being no, the we're Packers. Discussing, we're discussing three of the four or five top teams in the NFC. And, yeah, and, the and essentially, as you know, through all so them. that game really, I hate to put it this way, since the Packers won't be playing the Falcons again, they won't be playing the Seahawks again, it's really worth two games. Because you beat the team, and you get the tiebreaker then against the team. So this is a huge game for the Falcons and the Packers uh, coming up. Huge yeah. game for the Packers. That's the game that caught my eye. Seriously, not the Buccaneers and the so, Bears. What, so any predictions about what's going to happen in that game? Yeah. I this think is it in Atlanta? It's in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Um, I like the Falcons in that game. I wasn't that impressed by the Packers last week. Um, they beat, I think, a very limited offensive Seattle team. I think the Falcons um, are still the elite team in the NFC, um, so I like the Falcons. Yeah, I'm, in that I'm, game. I'm not. I'm not convinced yet to trust the uh, Packers' defense against you know a good offensive team. Basically, right. So, that's, so I, I like the Falcons in that game. So what's the line, Eric? It's the Falcons are minus two and a half, so neutral on an even field. Essentially, they have that game as pick them essentially on an even field, wow, neutral that's field. Interesting. So Dan Loney. Is here to join us and, and, and guys. chip in on the NFL matchups. Can I throw in two cents about that game? Sure. I, I know it's two and a half, and yeah, you give the three points. Falcons home opener, right? It is the Falcons home opener. New they stadium. were at the Bears last oh, week. New, new stadium. stadium. That's interesting. You think you think they're going to be how amped up? Hey man, is that this is an analytics be? show, Dan. You I, made it walk I, I into know. the wrong I studio. Hate br- this I hate morning. to bring my basic sports stuff into this, but I I, I think there's something about. Home openers for teams. I don't know what the percentages would be, but I think there's something about home openers for teams. Worked out well for the Patriots, certainly. <laughs> yeah, it did. Well, Kate, yeah. let me ask you. I'm but sure that's you, the Patriots. You expect to let down after yeah. a great year, right? I'm sure you guys have looked. Kate, I, I, I don't know if you guys have looked at this, but if you put into your mathematical model the Massey Peabody system, let's say home field versus home opener, there's enough data. Is there is there a difference? Has anybody yeah, looked? I, 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 we have, not that I know of. I mean, we've never looked that I know of. It's a fair question. It's an interesting question. By the way, we have Atlanta third best team in the in the in the league with a nice bump after last week. We actually dropped Green Bay after last week. Whoever said they weren't impressed with huh. Green Bay, despite so, what do you Seattle, guys have as the advantage of for we, the Falcons? We would make it Packers. about a one point game on a neutral field, and so we're going to make it about a four point game or so. So it's not quite an edge. What did you say the line was? Two, Two and a half. Yeah, so there's no not... edge. There's no edge there, but we would lean. We would lean toward. Um, Atlanta there. So, but just coming in late, who's tops on the on the list? We still have New England. They took a huge hit for us. Two more than two point hit in one week is is impressive. Yeah. But they had enough of a gap. You know who our number two is? 
I'm shocked by this. Dallas? I was mocking, mocking ESPN's 538's ELO model for running Kansas City up the oh, board. Really? We have KC number two yeah. and almost caught New England. Come on. By the way, we, since we're— Alex Smith's still the quarterback. I mean, I know he Andy, looked amazing on Thursday. Andy Reid's good for on. a couple of timeout mistakes along the way here. Right. <laughs> I, I would not have known a team could slide from number 12 to number 2 in our model on one game. Well, let me ask a question. How much—you've talked about this before, though, using the Massey Peabody. How much flatness is there in the ratings? Like, how impressive is it to go between 11 and 2? Like, did the Patriots have so much of a gap? Like, That's in other right. words, 2 to 11 is but, essentially— well, let's put it this way. The Pats dropped— Two and a half points and didn't leave number one. KC improved one and a half points and moved. So it's a very spots. flat. But of course, you got. Uh, you know, we've already been talking about the Moneyball matchup here for five minutes, and we haven't mentioned that the Eagles and the Chiefs are playing each other this week. Well, Our Eagles are at the Chiefs. That's what I was going to say. I mean, if by you know, I shouldn't say if by chance when the Eagles beat the Chiefs this weekend, uh, you oh know, my goodness. who let this guy in? What? <laughs> I thought we were talking about Lewis in this show. Well, but 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 what would be your expectation, Kate? Of a potential drop by the Chiefs, I mean, would it be similar? No, I mean, depends on what happens on the field. I mean, what the reason a team would run up or down is because of what we see on a play-by-play basis. Sometimes it doesn't matter. So, what doesn't translate very directly? What does Massey Peabody have for Chiefs Eagles? So, we love KC as I've just said, about four and a half uh, versus neutral. Philadelphia, we like a number number nine in the league and about two and a half. So, on a neutral field, would make it two points, but it's in KC, so we're going to make it about a five-point game. What's the line? Four. Yeah. Yeah. So no edge on that one. Nope. We agree. We basically agree with the market. But, you know, the, the interesting question to me remains um, of what Carson Wentz is going to do. We're still it's so, so early that we should, if he's going to keep progressing, see steps on almost a weekly basis. Let me just say, I, I, Dan, I hope you're right. I mm-hmm. would. I don't want to say I'd be shocked, but I'll say it anyway. We're on the radio. I was supposed to say something. I'd be shocked if the Eagles won that game. That, it's, and yeah. it's not momentum. Shocked. I'm not saying it's a mo- four point line. I'm not yeah. saying momentum. Why I do just, we suddenly believe the Chiefs are amazing? I mean, I, okay, I, fine, they beat the Patriots. I don't. I don't. Though, teams can do that. I don't necessarily <laughs> think in this case it's the Chiefs being that good. Yeah. But it's also the potential of the Eagles going on the road for the first time this year. Yeah. I think there's more of that. Playing well, it's their second it on the road. That. They played at Redskins. Oh, that's right. That's right. This is actually, that's right. think about, that's by right. the way, that's not a civ- trivial start right. to a season yeah. at Redskins yeah. and at Chiefs. The thing that impressed me about Kansas City, and we, I'm glad we talked to Steve about it, was, man, they have two really fast players. I mean, Kareem Hunt, and I apologize, the other guy. Tyreek Hill? Ty- these two guys, yeah. Yeah. imagine Darren Sproles, and now you got two of them. Yeah, yeah. The, this, uh, that's what impressed yeah. me oh, about they, Kansas they, they, City. It they wasn't should... just them beating the, the Patriots. Did, yeah. did you guys talk about Viking Steelers as well? Which I think, which oh. I think is a very oh, interesting 10, game man. as well. Super Bowl ten. That's like maybe the first Super Bowl I remember. Is I, I think right? that's a very interesting Fran game, Tarkenton, considering the way this, the Vikings played the other yeah. night, and the Steelers seemingly, you know, are are going to be a decent team again this year. What do they say on Viking Steelers? So Minnesota jumped nicely based on their performance down there. We have a number seven in the league at about plus three. We love Pittsburgh, of course, about plus four. Where's the game? In Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. So we're going to make it about a plus. Four, we're going to make it about a plus four game. Steelers right. are favored by seven. So we don't like them that much. That's getting into yeah. edge territory. That's right. getting into and you know that's there's good psychological reasons you might want the Vikings because they're not a team that. The, that the market loves, and everyone loves the Steelers. And so right. you might you might think about the Vikings there. And i got to say, three seconds, who would have thought that there would be some interest 
between Titans at Jaguars. I know that game actually has some interest because both those teams are thought of as improved teams, and the Jaguars could go to two and zero, and you know that's an awful division. So yeah. why not the Jaguars? Well, the Mariota, of course, is he going to progress? And then Fournette, the rookie running back, Fournette, and um, is he going to be as good as we hoped he would be when he comes in the league? We'll find out more. That. Does it for the show, fellas. That was two hours, four quarters here on Wharton Moneyball. We do it every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. We're into football now, so we do the Wharton Moneyball matchups at the end of the week. Two great weeks coming up over the next seven days. Enjoy your sports. We'll be back. Come back and join us then. Wharton Moneyball. Have a great one.